Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. The coronavirus pandemic is fundamentally a public health challenge to us right now. But as we've seen in a series of special episodes that we've been running the last few weeks, that public health challenge has broad interaction with a whole bunch of other serious policy issues. One is the economy, and we've explored that in a recent episode. Another is the law itself, specifically constitutional law, the law that governs the question of where public health stops and your individual liberties begin. That's an issue that's only beginning to emerge as central in our public debate around governmental response to the coronavirus. To talk about this issue, I had a conversation with Professor Richard Lazarus of Harvard Law School. Richard is one of the leading Supreme Court advocates in the country. His area of specialization is environmental and natural resources law, and that makes him truly expert on the question of how expertise in government judgment within government agencies interacts with the power of the federal government and the power of the courts. He's the author of a new book, The Rule of Five, Making Climate History at the Supreme Court, which gives you the inside story of the most significant environmental law case of recent decades. Okay, so Richard, let's just start with many government institutions are trying to respond to the corona crisis, and the Supreme Court is now the latest to have announced some steps. What's your sense of what the court has in fact done? Well, what the court has done um, is they've decided to take the quite significant step of postponing oral argument. Uh, the court was supposed to hear oral argument in the last week of March, beginning on Monday, March 23rd. The court has announced that it's going to postpone uh, the entire March oral argument session. That's two weeks of argument. And then hold those cases instead for argument in April. Uh, and I expect there's a good chance uh, 
the court may well hold argument in May in addition to that. I mean, I understand they're leaving the door open for May, and we all hope that things have passed their worst then, but why would you think that things would be so different in May? I mean, I don't see anything from any epidemiologist that thinks that things are going to be better then, especially in Washington, D.C., where, in fact, the cases have been relatively slow to, surprisingly slow to get going. Yeah, I think the court is, one, acting in a hopeful, optimistic way, the way many people are right now. All the different kinds of orders are only for three or four or five weeks, even if people assume it may take longer than that. So there's a chance this is a first step, and the court may have to take further steps. But beyond that, the court can hear cases, and they can hear argument in ways uh, that are not inconsistent uh, with the measures being taken to prevent the spread of the virus. You mean like a FaceTime argument or a Zoom argument? At the they Supreme can do Court. a FaceTime argument. They can do a Zoom argument. They can have people, only the lawyers mm-hmm. uh, in the courtroom, no one else mm-hmm. in the courtroom except the lawyers and the justices, the marshal and the clerk. They can have only those folks there. They can have them spread out pretty well in the courtroom. And the justice can also, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's an insult to say it in the presence of such a great oral advocate at the Supreme Court as you, but they could also decide cases without the benefit of, of oral argument. Well, they? they do that all the time. Yeah, there's certainly no requirement they have oral argument. They can limit the number of cases for which they hear oral argument. My guess is they'd only be hearing time-sensitive cases anyway. Hmm. Uh, any case that they think really has no particular time sensitivity, if things get worse, those cases they can push in a heartbeat mm-hmm. uh, to October. It's only the cases that seem more time-sensitive. I mean, I'll give you examples. The Trump subpoena cases mm-hmm. are probably cases for more time-sensitive. The McGahn subpoena and other, the other the cases. The Electoral right? College cases. Those are, those are cases the court needs to decide. Yeah, we need to know what the answer is to those before we actually have an election. Exactly. So I think they'll feel a need. If push comes to shove, they can decide that oral argument. They can certainly decide them uh, with only some justices in the room. The court has already done that. I mean, there are justices, when Chief Justice Rehnquist was ill during the 2004 term, you know, about 15 years ago, he would vote on cases if his vote made a difference by listening to the oral argument. Uh, mm-hmm. Something that He would listen to the tapes of the oral argument. He listened to the tapes of yeah. the oral argument, and then he would vote. He otherwise wouldn't participate. Mm-hmm. So they can. And the court, I believe, has shut down oral argument before. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the pandemic uh, in 1918, the Spanish mm-hmm. flu, mm-hmm. Uh, the court also, uh, I'm pretty sure, shut down oral argument. So it's not without precedent. There are other institutions who would be much more hard-pressed to figure out how to function. Congress would be much more hard-pressed mm-hmm. to function uh, than the United States Supreme Court. Uh, th- or an th- ordinary federal district court, I think. I mean, the Supreme Court is much more, it's much grander. It's a much more formalized process. There are a lot of, you know, nine justices sitting on every case. And they could do everything that they do in principle without oral argument because they have detailed written briefs. But not all of that will be true for every you know, federal district court and certainly not for local courthouses around the country. Some parts of justice, like criminal trials, exactly. criminal constitutionally trials. can't do them remotely, probably. That's um, right. I mean, it requires, you know, in-person, at least we've already always understood it, to require in-person presence. Yeah, you're supposed to be able to see your witness. You're supposed to be under the confrontation clause. I mean, there are all kinds right, the of— the Constitution gives you the right to confront the witnesses against you, and so far, courts don't think that it's good enough to confront them on, on FaceTime. That's right. So there are all kinds of challenges in other parts of the judiciary that will be much more intense than the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can get its job done. We're talking about the administration of the criminal justice system of the United States— uh, at the local level, uh, at the trial level, and by police and magistrates, uh, I think the system uh, will 
could quickly become overwhelmed in, in sort of a parallel to what's happening uh, with the hospitals being overwhelmed. The Supreme Court, it can accommodate this uh, relatively uh, easily, uh, I think, as an institutional matter. Uh, but the local administration of criminal justice, it's going to be a challenge. They don't have the resources or the expertise to do things remotely. Uh, universities like Harvard and the rest, we can switch to Trying to figure it out, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, and it's a challenge for us, but you're not going to be able to see that happen at the local level, and they're going to face real issues in real time. Richard, what did it mean when the president said, I'm declaring a national emergency? Well, to some extent, it meant a lot less than people might have thought, and they're much less unusual than people might think. We normally just don't hear about them. I mean, to give you an example, I mean, there have been about 48 formal declarations by the President of the United States of national emergencies uh, in the last 30-plus years. Uh, President Trump has done a whole bunch in the last year itself. It's usually about six every four years of, of national emergencies declared by the president. President Trump has had, in, in 2019, there were about 80 declarations of disasters. So that by itself means a lot less than people might think, because normally the declaration of emergency or the declaration of disaster is a very limited sort of salience. You have something which is quite narrowly defined. We're upset about the Taliban, so we're going to do export restrictions. That's a more classic declaration of a national emergency, or there's been a, a flood disaster in, in a certain state. That's a typical disaster declaration. This one uh, is categorically different, which is why we know so much about it. But as a result of that, it, it doesn't by itself mean that much. It, it can trigger a lot. So, for instance, when the president uh, last Friday, just March 13th, declared a national emergency, and he did that under the National Emergencies Act. Uh, that's an aptly named statute. Uh, and he also did it under what's called the Stafford Disaster Act. Of the two declarations he made, the National Emergency Act by itself is a far less immediate legal consequence. Under the Stafford Act, by declaring it a disaster, that potentially frees up about 45 to $50 billion, uh, which has already been authorized and allocated uh, by Congress to be managed by the Federal Emergency Management Agency for natural disasters and other kinds of disasters. So that money is immediately freed up. To some extent, it can be spent uh, by the federal government. But what it really then allows is the states to respond to that declaration by, in turn, declaring a major disaster within their states, within their borders, and then requesting assistance from the federal government. And if you take a look, President Trump made his declaration on March 13th. Immediately after that, all the governors that I can see, all the governors of all the states uh, made matching declarations uh, of disasters within their state as did the territories, you know, Guam, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, everyone did, because what happens is that makes them eligible to receive that money to do all kinds of things to address uh, the current crisis uh, of the virus. Now, note, it doesn't al allows them to get federal assistance, but it's still by a formula. It's 75% by the federal government and 25% by the states. So it's not just free money. Now, Congress could change that if they want. On the current formula, it's a 75, 25%. But that's what's going to allow states to do all kinds of things to shore up uh, their public health resources. So now that you brought up the states, Richard, we're, we're going to have to wade into one of the things that people around the world, I think, consider weirdest about the American system of government and specifically about our response to corona. And it's something where 
there's already, I've already read some articles, not only from abroad, but from within the U.S. saying, what are you people doing? And that is the question of the relationship between the federal government and the state governments, or what, you know, we in our business call constitutional federalism. So in Europe, if a central government, if the government of France wants to declare a state of emergency and impose conditions, the central government does it. And every single government official, down to the most local public health official or the rat catcher, they all respond to the same central bureaucracy. It's a centralized system. Our system doesn't work that way. We've got 50 states plus the territories, which are maybe a more complicated issue for federalism. We won't touch on them today. But we have 50 states, each of which has its own inherent constitutional authority to do a whole bunch of stuff, and especially stuff connected to public health. In the news, the way that's been playing out is that the first handful of states are starting actually to issue orders that limit movement or that close schools. And that authority, I take it, they can exercise entirely on their own without federal authority, correct? That's absolutely right. It's, it's sort of backwards what people might think from other countries. First of all, the presidential declaration of disaster under the Stafford Act would have be of limited significance if the states hadn't responded under the statute to hmm. say, we agree there's a disaster here. Uh, the federal money couldn't be spent the way it was. That's one issue. But then you're right, beyond the Stafford Act, to the extent that decisions are going to be made to close schools, to stop crowds of more than 25 or more uh, here in Massachusetts, to close restaurants and bars and other places for public gathering. That's not a power which it's clear the, the President of the United States has in the first instance. Uh, those are powers that state officials and local officials have uh, in this country. What about restrictions on movement under conditions of quarantine? I mean, I, I think that it's straightforwardly the case that if states have laws on the books, which I think almost all states do, sometimes really old laws, that authorize the governor or other public health officials in the state to issue quarantine laws, there doesn't seem to be any doubt that that's an inherent power of the states. Yeah, I think that's right. It's inherent power of the state. It's sort of a classic uh, police power. Uh, and the states and local governments, the more one looks at this, they exercise those powers. The idea of a, of a pandemic and contagion is incredibly unsettling to all of us. But it was more the kind of thing people knew about in the early part of the 20th century in this nation's history. So this was classic state and local governmental action under their police power. My guess is that the federal government could do a lot more uh, than it does. So let's say, let's try to do a concrete scenario. I live in Massachusetts. For some reason, I need to cross the state line into Connecticut for something. Or I need to help a relative or, you know, check in on a, on a friend who's, who needs special care. And then I want to come back across the border. And in the meantime, the governor of Massachusetts says, no one move in and out of our state. Realistically, it's not clear to me whether that would be something that would happen. But let's imagine that it did. And things like that are happening in other places around the world. Would the governor probably have the inherent authority just to say, I'm putting the state cops at the border and I'm saying, hey, even if you live in Massachusetts, show us your driver's license, show us where you live, you can't come back in. I mean, that sounds absolutely insane uh, and crazy, but, but I think the governor would have that inherent authority. I think people would just a few weeks ago, maybe a few days ago, would have bristled at the idea. Maybe many people would now. But my guess is if the governor made such an order and backed it up with different kinds of scientific basis for what he did, I think you'd find right now uh, that a court 
uh, would be very wary uh, in the midst of a public health crisis of preventing the governor from doing that. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. 
don't like it. Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. So let's talk about the courts, which are our backstop that we're used to relying on under circumstances where the government takes steps that violate what we think of as our ordinary liberties. And let's start with a state case where, let's say, I'm stuck at the border and I want to get back into the state and I go to court and I say, hey, government, you can't just exclude me from getting back home. That's not within your ordinary powers. And let's imagine you were representing the state in court the same way you represented the federal government and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, many times. What would you argue to the court about why it was justified for the government to sustain uh, that kind of an order? Uh, well, I, I just basically I rely on two things. Uh, the first is the degree of the exigency, uh, what the risks were uh, of contagion, the spread of contagion, uh, and the second uh, is the time sensitivity of it. Uh, that this is a true emergency, that there's not time to stay this, to wait and think about it and study it more. The cost to the public health would be too great uh, for the court to do what it might normally do, which is enjoin something which looks like it might be overreaching in order to basically uh, let a more deliberative process uh, be used. I think here I'd try to stress we don't have that, uh, we don't have that luxury to do that. Now, I think the kind of governmental order that would be uh, more suspect in a classic sense is it didn't seem neutral on its face. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you had a government order which said everyone of a certain ethnic origin, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to stop them. Uh, if it looked like it was deliberately targeting uh, certain kinds of people mm-hmm. uh, and certain kinds of populations, then I can imagine a court might well step in. But akin to sort of a First Amendment regulation, it looks fairly neutral mm-hmm. uh, in terms of time, place, or manner, mm-hmm. uh, and really looks like on its face. Uh, it's geared to deal with a public health emergency. I think a court would be very hard-pressed, federal or state, mm-hmm. to second-guess the governor uh, whose advice appeared to be based on real public health information. You know, and to go to the point that you were making about how it seems hard to imagine the state troopers stopping us at the state border, I wonder if we're not in some sort of gradually sliding scale of what seems weird to us. I mean, certainly the rumors which are, are out there include constant rumors of the possibility of people being blocked from traveling at state borders. Um, I heard from a group of students recently who were trying to figure out whether they, if they left campus, they could come back to campus. And one of the issues that they were talking about was, well, gee, if we cross the state borders, even within the United States, might we be blocked from coming back? And I gave them exactly the response that you just made to me, which makes me feel a little better, namely that it seems hard to imagine the government doing that but that it probably would be within the legal authority of the state under these conditions. And after saying it, I thought to myself, is it really so unimaginable now that I've said that? And it may be that just what seems unimaginable today 
maybe less unimaginable tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Well, uh, that's certainly how I think we all feel uh, in the last several weeks. Everything we couldn't have imagined has become imaginable in some way. I, I don't want to suggest it without limit. So if let's talk if, about the limits, yeah, right? Please. So if if three months ago a governor of a state had announced that he or she thought there was some extraordinary virus affecting the state and try to shut down the borders, I have no doubt uh, that a federal court would have immediately struck that down. Uh, The reason I'm suggesting right now that we'd find greater willingness on the part of federal judges uh, to defer and not to second guess is what everyone's reading, what everyone's seeing. Uh, So it's not as though a public official, a governor, can sort of willy-nilly do this. There's enough evidence in the air right Liter- now literally at the moment. to yeah. take judicial notice uh, that I think a public health official uh, and a governor of a state uh, has instant credibility in this issue, at least to the extent the court is not going to enjoin it, uh, is going to allow it to proceed, uh, and then may well hold a hearing uh, to have it backed up with a heavy presumption in favor of ruling in favor. Ultimately, though, especially if this takes place over a longer period of time, I can imagine that courts would gradually become less deferential as the crisis begins to be more managed and begins to recede and might eventually require the state or the federal government to provide some clearer justification for why it's really necessary to block people's movement or to shut down businesses and so forth and so on. Isn't isn't our protection ultimately from the courts the idea that there's only government authority to block our liberties if there's a compelling reason to do so, like pandemic, and if the government methods for doing so are closely matched to what is necessary, even narrowly tailored, as we sometimes say in the law, to what is necessary. I mean, that's our ultimate protection, I take it. Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, the courts themselves don't have armies. Uh, They don't have police forces. Uh, Even, you know, the federal government doesn't have necessarily, unless they're going to bring in the army, it takes some level of of public acquiescence in it. And this is going to test the patience, the American public. It's one thing to do this for a week. It's another thing to do for two weeks. But when businesses are shut down for potentially weeks, if not months, uh, schools and the rest, it's going to really try uh, the, the spirit of America to see whether or not we're willing to acquiesce in these kinds of very, very stringent measures. One of the issues around acquiescence that immediately struck me is criminal enforcement. So if, you know, the state has the power to make you not leave your house, then they have the power to arrest you and punish you criminally if you violate that rule. And ditto for the federal government. I mean, I I discovered there is, in fact, a federal statute that says that if the federal government is assisting the states in enforcing their quarantines or isolation orders, that violating the federal orders is itself a federal crime, punishable by prison time. It's hard for me to picture the governor of the United States actually exercising the power to arrest people and punish them under these circumstances. But I guess if there were widespread violation or if someone was violating that to make a profit or some other bad thing, it's there as a a potential sanction. That's right. Uh, The federal government can step in criminally just like the state and local governments can, uh, and they can punish people at a huge cost to doing so. But Uh, The federal government found their authority being challenged, Mm -hmm. including maybe uh, authority being challenged at some point by local authorities. We might well see the federal government step in and take action and make clear, as we all know, the federal law is supreme. 
What's the scenario you're describing there where a state pushed back? Well, you can imagine the federal government believes that a certain part of the country is posing a greater threat to the rest uh, of the country. Like Boston, uh, we, have a, we have an early right. outbreak. Uh, and we have a big outbreak here. And the federal government uh, itself doesn't want people from Boston and Massachusetts to go to other parts of the country. Hmm. P- people in Boston might well want to leave. Uh, they might well want to get out and get to other parts of the country. I certainly know people, maybe you know people. I know people are headed to Maine. Mm -hmm. I know people headed to Vermont, New Hampshire. They want to get out Mm -hmm. of an area which looks like it might be an an epicenter. And it might well be the federal government doesn't want that, but the residents of Massachusetts do want that. Uh, So you can imagine in terms of the notion of isolation, uh, the pressure will be from the rest of the country to isolate an area which has epicenter. And that area won't have that same incentive. Uh, again, we're not there yet. That's a scenario no, that we may not be that far from it. But but yeah. but right now, a lot of people don't want to see people from Seattle. They might not necessarily want people in neighboring states. Might not want people from Seattle coming into their rural areas. So here, you know, my civil liberties senses start to tingle because you know we said that the courts would be suspicious of a rule that targeted certain people. But if it targets people from a certain area, then the courts might say, well, you know, maybe we need that. And our current president is not someone who I think would be at all worried about targeting people from areas that happen, coincidentally enough, not to be his political supporters. And we've already seen him do that. Um, It's under litigation challenge right now, but we saw him do that when he said that uh, New Yorkers could no longer get TSA pre-check benefits because he was angry at the state government for the way they were interacting with the immigration authorities. So we know that he's more than capable of targeting people from a state. So how would you imagine a court thinking about it if there were sort of a ban on people from Massachusetts, but no ban on people from some, you know, red state that also had an outbreak and someone went to court and said, well, look, you know, this isn't really justified. You're just targeting us because we're Massachusetts and you, the federal government, don't like us. The president doesn't like us. I think what would happen is the courts in the first instance uh, be wary of imposing an immediate injunction mm-hmm. in the context of public health crisis. Meaning they might just let it, they, they might, might just say, we're gonna, we'll think about this, but for the meantime, this order is staying in place because of the public health crisis. Yeah, I, I think you'd find a court very wary of doing an immediate enjoining to stop the federal government order. Then I think you might well see courts step in. They'd want to see some real evidence. But you're right, there is a perversity here. President Trump's support right now is not in the major urban areas in the United States. His support is much more geographically spread out uh, in this country, in the rural areas. It's even possible this virus could present a, a rural versus urban rift. And this president does all kinds of unprecedented things. Uh, there are no norms that I found applicable to him. Uh, so the notion that he might well find the reasons not to do something extraordinary with respect to urban area like Boston or the state of California. Uh, Again, not a state which he has been sort of shy about uh, disapproving uh, of their their actions, undoubtedly not unrelated to the fact that he finds no political support there. It's not as far-fetched as one might have hoped. The legal scenario where the president orders a national shutdown, where the president says, look, more or less as governors have done in individual states, everybody now stay at home. Every business other than, you know, a food services business shut down or, and, you know, gas stations shut down. 
Does that seem to you within the scope of the president's authority under the current statutory framework? I mean, it looks to me from looking at the statutes like the Centers for Disease Control can order effectively quarantine or isolation features. So I think the president maybe couldn't just do it on his own. Maybe he would have to make sure the CDC was on board. But the CDC works for the president. And again, this is not so crazy because it's happened in most other countries. Does that look to you like within the realm of constitutional reason? I'd have to look at the statutes themselves yeah, yeah. Uh, because the president's inherent authority over this area is is different than it's, it would be. It's pretty a, minimal, yeah. Yeah, than in other countries. Look to the statutes, see the CDC uh, authority, uh, see who exactly- See if Congress has allowed it, basically. Right, see who Congress has delegated that authority to, to right. uh, within the CDC. It's not gonna refer to the president of the United States uh, by name. It's gonna refer to certain people within uh, the CDC is going to give them the authority in the first instance. And, and that by itself is a limiting factor. That's really important. Can we, can we just drill down on that for one second? Because the point you made is so significant. When Congress authorizes the federal government to do stuff like this in the public health interest or the public safety interest, it doesn't say, typically, the president of the United States may. It says the Centers for Disease Control or the Environmental Protection Agency or it gives the authority usually to an expert agency to exercise its expertise to make the determination that this is genuinely required or necessary. But we have this three-part system of government where in theory, that agency is always under the command in some form or another of the president. So in real world terms, what limitation does that impose? What, how does it limit the president's actions when the statute authorizes someone who works for the president to make a decision like this? Because we know this president will just want to say, I did it. He will not want to say, the CDC did it. Well, he has to get someone in position of authority in the in that agency to take the action he requests. Uh, and if they decline uh, to do it, which has happened, uh, if they decline to do it, he can he can fire them. And hire uh, someone else. And, who will and hire somebody else. Uh, but that procedure by itself, if there are a whole series of re- resignations or firing and hiring and appointment of acting, that's going to then raise the kind of trigger concerns of federal judges uh, and federal courts, because they know there's a reason why Congress assigned that uh, to the officer in the first instance. I, I know of only offhand one statute which actually assigns that kind of authority to the President of the United States, as opposed to an agency, and that's actually the federal Superfund law, the hazardous hmm. waste law. Hmm. Uh, and the statute is written in terms of the president, and that's because Congress couldn't decide whether to give that authority to the head of EPA or the head of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to address hazardous waste. So they compromise by giving it to the president in name and the statute, but that's highly unusual. And does that statute, that Superfund statute, which is in your heartland of environmental law, does it require the president to make some factual findings of some kind before he exercises that authority? It, it, it does, certain kinds of endangerment findings, but the president has, by executive order, immediately delegated that uh, to the head of EPA, the Environmental right. Protection Agency. Uh, so he has basically made it as though the statute did that. But the statute didn't. And the President of the United States could any time take, take that away. But he can't do that for the CDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the CDC is a particular agency that it's obviously got a, a culture right. uh, and a set of norms to it. So one could well imagine uh, that a head of a CDC or an officer in the CDC uh, would decline a directive from the president, more than you could expect, you know, the secretary of state would or the secretary mm-hmm. of defense would or the secretary of treasury would. 
And that's precisely why Congress, when it passed those statutes and gave those kind of extraordinary authorities, uh, didn't just give it to the President of the United States, uh, but gave it to the CDC. The structural issue here, which you know I'm really fascinated by, and it's been under attack throughout the Trump presidency, which is our background assumption of what protects our liberties in conditions where expertise is needed to limit our liberties, is this idea that there are professional bureaucrats who are as close to rational objectivity as is possible for humans, who are embedded in these different parts of the government. And that when Congress gives big authority to the executive branch, it's really trying to give it to those people, the people whom Donald Trump considers the deep state, you know, the people who are supposed to act based on rational judgment, cost-benefit analysis, and make uh, decisions that are in everyone's interest. Trump has been so busy trying to erode and undercut that kind of authority and expertise that we really have had to think for the last, you know, three plus years about just how strong that resistance power is. And I'm not using resistance in a the capital R resistance to Trump, but just in the sense of, you know, what bureaucrats who are supposed to exercise their authority are doing. And it does seem to me, given everything he's said and done already during the corona pandemic, that he will be very unsympathetic to the idea that there are professionals who exercise judgment and who have to kick in with their own judgment before he takes steps. I can very easily picture him contradicting them in either direction, either to say, I've said everyone has to stay home and they have to stay home, or the other way, when those officials say, we think everyone should stay home. And you can imagine Trump saying, no, you know, I, I refuse to, to do that. And this is a case where you know, all of our worries about the separation of powers that we've been talking about over the last three plus years, I mean, I've been talking a lot about it, um, you know, are sort of coming to a head in a situation where it could really matter. I think that's absolutely right. I've actually found it somewhat unsettling uh, in the past four weeks, I expect others have as well, to see the President of the United States surrounded by those public health officials. Uh, and he seems to be trying to co-opt them and make them in, into public health and sort of political spokespeople for him uh, to be, you know, they now congratulate him uh, when they stand up uh, and make comments on everything that he's doing. I'd like some separation there uh, between the president of the United States and the public health officials and not make them seem like they're mouthpieces, political mouthpieces for the president. So I, I do worry that he's eroding uh, that kind of trust we might otherwise have, which are so important right now in a moment of crisis. This deserves its own conversation, and maybe we'll be able to have it going forward. But I have a worry in the back of my mind, um, maybe not the back, maybe the middle of my mind, about the elections. Um, you know, there could be good public health reasons for justifying delays in some primaries, but that may not matter all that much, especially if the next few primaries end up leaving uh, one of the Democratic challengers way ahead of the other. So maybe delaying those primaries isn't the end of the world. But the big worry, of course, is the presidential election. Nothing in the Constitution, as I read it, would allow, authorize, or even contemplate delaying a presidential election. But individual states have a lot of discretion in how they could enable that election to happen. States could put in place mail-in voting they could experiment with various online methods, provided those are protected from Russian hacking efforts. But I think it might not be too soon to sort of put a marker down and say, no, the president of the United States or Congress cannot delay a presidential election. Yeah, I think there's very little doubt that the president of the United States cannot do it on his own, that that would uh, raise very serious constitutional issues. I don't think there's any worry that Congress 
would do it right now, given given uh, you have a democratic uh, democrat, house and, democratic right. house. Here, here's the worry. Uh, the worry is the states. I mean, mm. t- to the extent um, that the president uh, directed to the states uh, to do it, uh, to the extent that we've seen sort of, to my sense, a shocking acquiescence in the president's demands by a lot of Republican leadership hmm. uh, in this country. I don't think it's beyond the pale. I hope it is beyond the pale. The President of the United States basically directed governors. I don't, I've not done a recent count uh, of governors that are uh, held Republican. by Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if a sizable number of states responded to that hmm. by saying, we are not going to hold elections uh, because of this disaster which is inflicting us, uh, and I'm sure we could find instances of fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, maybe even mm-hmm. contagion in the past mm-hmm. where elections were delayed, mm-hmm. not by order of the President of the United States, mm-hmm. but by order of a local government official or a state government official. I'm hoping that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the very least, I can say with this president, mm-hmm. anything's uh, possible. I can well see him making such a request. Uh, and then the question will be whether or not uh, those Republican governors view themselves as independent actors or not. As usual, Richard, talking to you not only teaches me a huge amount, but it enables me to think through the structure and see the see the problems coming down the road. I think of you as the constitutional lawyer as constitutional lawyer. You know, you're the person, as you know, whom I always come to at sometimes at two in the morning to say, I'm trying to figure out this constitutional issue. Am I right? Am I wrong? How should I be thinking about it? And you've just been super, super helpful uh, on all of these issues uh, as we've been going through the current situation and in this conversation as well. Thank you very, very much. As I talked to Richard, I gradually found myself getting more and more nervous about the possible civil liberties consequences of the coronavirus pandemic. It's not our primary worry right now. Our primary worry is staying safe. And in a moment of trying to stay safe, we do tend, as Richard said, to defer to the government's decisions. But as this pandemic continues, we should keep a close eye on how our civil liberties do end up being limited and constrained by the government, because those liberties are crucial to our human well-being. They may not be as important as not being sick, but in the long run, they set the conditions for a healthy and free society. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with studio recording by Joseph Fridman and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com backslash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. 
Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it. Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. 